So we've been in the book of Acts for almost four months now, which is pretty crazy. And, and the fact that we're still close to the beginning. We're gonna make it, guys. Acts is a long book, and it's exciting, and it's an adventure to be a part of. But I told you at the very beginning, this is the story of the remnant on mission. This small group of people is entrusted with spreading the message of Jesus to the Greco-Roman world at the time. And Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the exact story that we watch unfold in the pages of Acts. But one of the things I told you at the very beginning was that every time the gospel goes into new territory, the powers of darkness will be resisting the advancement of the message of Jesus. We're talking about demons. We're, we're talking about the devil. We're talking about like evil in the world because, and if you don't know this by now, wow, you're not paying attention to the news or anything happening in the world. You do not live in a neutral world. We live in a world where good and evil are very real. We live in a world where light and darkness are very real. And so as the message of Jesus goes out, I told you, every time it takes new ground, there will be new resistance. It's the same way in your life personally, by the way. Every time God is taking new ground in your life, there is a counter effort from the powers of darkness to prevent God from advancing in a new way in your life. And that's absolutely true about the early church. And so last week, when Mark Lamb is up here telling you, that all this persecution happened in Jerusalem and Stephen was killed and then everybody had to leave. Only the apostles stayed. And there's this guy named Philip who goes up to Samaria, preaches the gospel and people are getting saved. As soon as you hear that message, which is a really good message, by the way, Mark, for that to be your first sermon at ACC, good night, bro. God's hand is on your life. And I just, I love that he talked about grief because we've heard so many stories of loss and of cancer and of difficulty the last couple of months, I cannot think of a better sermon for our people to hold on to that God is in the midst of the brokenness. And if you missed last week, definitely go back and check that out. But tune into this one first. Um, but, but when he said that last week, I'm like, if you've been paying attention, an alarm bell should be going off in your mind. Oh, the gospel went to a new place, Samaria. What do you think is going to happen next? The darkness is going to resist. And that's exactly what's going to happen today through a man who's known in the scriptures as Simon the Sorcerer. This guy's a magician, a practicer of magic arts. And so when you hear that, you're like, oh, clearly the demonic is pushing back. It's a sorcerer who's going to be a part of what's happening. Actually, it's not what you think. See, the way the enemy attacks the church is not through some external mystical force. It's through the skewed and distorted inner motives of someone who seems interested in the gospel. Pay attention to this. The way the enemy counteracts what God is doing in Samaria is through the intentions and the motives of somebody who on the surface seems like they are actually a legitimate Christian. And today we're gonna let what happens in Acts chapter eight speak to us right here and right now. I'm telling you ahead of time, it's convicting. You'll feel like you're getting a hug from God at the same time he's stepping on your toes. I just wanna tell you, it's not me, it's the word of God. And I'm just trying to get out of his way. The title for this sermon is called God Looks at the Heart. God looks at the heart. Can you look at somebody next to you and tell them, check your heart. Check your heart. We gotta check your heart today. Check your heart. Guard your heart, bro. God looks at the heart. I took that line from 1 Samuel 16 where Samuel tells David's father when he's about to anoint the next king of Israel, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
You know the God who made everything is never fooled by our pretense and masks and whatever show we put on on the outside? You know you can literally fool anyone around you and you can fool yourself, but you can never fool God on the ground of your motives and intentions. When God looks at a human being, he has this ability to see everything that's going on beneath the surface. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter. He says, when Jesus comes back, every secret will be laid bare before whom we must give account. It's almost like God's gonna roll up the sky like a scroll, but he's also going to do the same thing with the human heart. And everything that we thought we could hide in the corner is going to be totally exposed. Now, if you're honest with yourself and you're anything like me, that doesn't encourage you where you sit right now. It makes you feel a little bit like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 when you get exposed. You're like, okay, I gotta find some type of a covering. I gotta find something to hide what's actually going on because we all have motives and stuff on the inside that we would rather keep hidden. And what did Adam and Eve do? They knew a holy God was present and they're all of a sudden aware of their nakedness when sin enters into the picture and they're literally grabbing at anything they can to try and cover what God can already see through. And if you know yourself well enough, you know there's some intentions and some motives that are off. And if the holy God who created everything sees through any attempt I make to make this look better on the outside than it actually is on the inside, I'm in trouble. Except for the fact that the Bible teaches and the gospel teaches this crazy reality that God's response to the ugliness and evil of the human heart being laid bare in front of him, his response was not to condemn us and separate us from him forever. His response is to take the reality of all that stuff and pin it publicly on his son as he dies on a Roman cross. You see, the beauty and horror of the cross is that Jesus is dying to take away the sins of the world, but the horror is that he's literally publicly taking on everything that you, everything that I could ever and will ever be ashamed of. And it's in broad daylight. It's for all the world to see. The perfect son of God, naked and bleeding out. Why does God have to do that? Because when God sees Jesus on the cross, he sees the ugliness of the sin that you're tempted to hide in full daylight so that now, when he sees your heart, if you are in Christ, he no longer sees that stuff as grounds for being separated from you, but he sees the righteousness of his son and wants to draw near to you as a son or as a daughter of God. That's the gospel. Guys, that is why every week when we come in here, we're freaking out about the same story. We're singing some of the same songs. I don't know how many times we've sang, oh, praise the name, Anastasis, and I can never get enough of it. We can't shut up about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because we're literally saying out loud, the God who made everything and made us for right relationship with him, even though we have every reason to recoil away from him when all of our sin and all of our stuff is exposed, he fully exposed all of that on the cross so that shame and secrets and darkness would not stop me from being loved from my father who made me. That's, that's what we're freaking out about. It's the message of Jesus, and it's awesome, and you're included in on it today. But here's where this sermon is going. Shockingly, it is possible, and living in Auburn, somewhat probable, that you can believe that 
about what Jesus did and still respond to it with distorted motives and intentions on the inside. So when I said God looks at the heart and we're gonna talk about distorted motives and intentions, I'm actually not talking about before you get saved. I'm talking about after you claim to be interested in Jesus. Did you know Peter's gonna drop this line in the passage that we read? He's gonna say, your heart is not right before God. And he's going to say it to a guy who said he believed in Jesus and got baptized, dunked underwater in front of everyone he knew. And Peter's going to tell him publicly, your heart's not in a good space before God because it's possible to intellectually believe all the correct doctrines about the Bible and still have your heart stuck in impure motives and intentions that God finds unacceptable for his children. And so today we're gonna do the hard work of letting a very, very difficult story unearth some of the lies that have become rooted in our hearts and lives. But I think it is going to be beautiful what happens when we discover that when God looks at the heart, if we respond the way he calls us to in scripture, we no longer have to run and hide. No, we plead the blood of Jesus and we are confident in his sight, but we gotta check our motives and check our intentions and make sure they are in line with what God calls us to do in scripture. Did you bring your Bible today? I told you I had some time off and I'm ready to roll. If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over this room. Keep it up if you shoot off your own fireworks on the 4th of July. I just wanna see where my people are at, yes. Keep them up or put them up. If somebody else shoots them off, you just go to like the show to see what somebody else is doing. Let me see you. I was gonna say lazy people. It's all right, it's fine. Um, keep Bible up if you don't even like fireworks and you're like, I try to go out to eat and just hide. Yeah, just be honest. Parents in the room. Turn with me to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. We're gonna start in verse nine talking about this guy, Simon the sorcerer, picking up right after where we were last week. And we're actually gonna do this in three different chunks that I'm gonna explain as we go. Acts chapter eight, beginning in verse nine. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Stop right there. This story seems to be going well. Philip's preaching the gospel in Samaria and he comes across this man named Simon who had this big following. He had a big following and attention that he was actually proud of. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people acknowledge, bro, you have signs that nobody else has. When we talk about mystical signs, the God of the Bible is not the only one doing mystical things in the pages of scripture. Read the book of Exodus. The powers of darkness have the capacity to do that as well. So he's doing fortune telling. He's demonstrating some sort of miraculous mystical power where the people are going, oh man, this guy has the power of God. Except when Philip shows up and articulates what Jesus has done, they're ready and willing to leave this guy behind and go with Philip. But amazingly, instead of disappearing and going into a corner by himself, Simon believes the message that Philip is preaching. 
and gets baptized along with the rest of them. So you're reading it and you're like, okay, maybe he turned his life around and God's doing this new thing. But you gotta keep reading because that is not the end of the story. Go to verse 14. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, we gotta stop for a second and do a little side sermon about baptism because in this narrative, you have one of the key passages that trips people up about what the meaning of baptism is in the book of Acts and whether or not there's two baptisms one of water and one of fire and the Holy Spirit, or there's one. Because when you read this, these believers are trusting in Jesus. They're getting dunked underwater. Peter and John make the trip from Jerusalem up to Samaria. And it says the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. It seems like there's a separation between your baptism when you believe and then your Holy Spirit baptism later. And this is not the only moment like this in Acts. It happens in Acts chapter 10, but it happens in opposite order. In Acts 10, the people are prophesying, demonstrating these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they haven't been baptized in the name of Jesus yet. And then in Acts 19, in Ephesus, it goes back to what happened in Samaria in the first place. So it begs the question, is there one baptism or two? Well, Ephesians teaches pretty point blank that there is one baptism for believers. Part of the reason why this is such a debate among Christians in the United States of America is because we speak English and we don't really understand words like baptism. Even me, I grew up Southern Baptist and for the longest time, I didn't even know what the word baptism really meant. Baptism is a word that means to immerse, to plunge under. So in a very real way, baptism is to be immersed in something and you can use it talking spiritual or you can use it in normal everyday life things. Like yesterday, I was at the pool and I baptized my six-year-old and my four-year-old by slamming them and dunking them underwater. Didn't do that to the one-year-old. She's not ready for that yet, but she'll get there. But it, it, it was pretty rough. And technically, in technical terms, I immersed them. I plunged them underwater. But we all know there was no spiritual power in getting slammed by your father at the pool. The meaning of your spiritual baptism, nobody missed this, is that you are immersed into unity with Christ at the moment you believe. When you trust in Jesus and you're converted, you receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit and you receive the forgiveness of your sins. That is your spiritual baptism. So technically speaking, you are not spiritually baptized when someone dunks you underwater in front of their church or when you demonstrate that you have a supernatural spiritual gift. Neither of those things are what it means to be baptized. There's one baptism and it is a baptism into Christ Jesus where you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are in Christ forever simply because God is that good. But then the question becomes, okay, Miles, if that's true, why do the two seem to be so separated in the book of Acts? Like, why didn't they just receive the Holy Spirit right when they believed if that's what seems to be happening over and over and over again in these narratives? And I would give you two reasons for that. Number one is that this is the book of Acts. There is a special thing happening in the book of Acts called the early church launching. What happened when the Holy Spirit went out at Pentecost? Everybody was praying in tongues. Tongues of fire comes on every believer. They're speaking in tongues and people are supernaturally understanding them. And so wherever the Holy Spirit spreads in the book of Acts, 
Wouldn't it be like God to unite believers in other locations by giving them the same spiritual gift to let them know they are a part of the same family? God is doing that in a special way in Acts because this is a special moment. So when people tell me, hey, until you pray in tongues, you haven't really received the Holy Spirit. I say, respectfully, I don't live in the book of Acts. Like I'm not in this moment of church history 2,000 years ago where the gospel is taking new ground and God is demonstrating the supernatural spread of the Holy Spirit in a very specific way. The second thing I would say about it is how Luke uses the Holy Spirit in both his gospel and the book of Acts. If you read the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts side by side, every time the Holy Spirit shows up, he shows up with experiential power. Luke wants you to know that when the Holy Spirit comes, power is being unleashed. The Holy Spirit living on the inside of you is not a theoretical thing for Luke, where you're like, yeah, I believe in God, and I've got this power that does stuff. No, Luke wants you to know, oh, you're a believer in Jesus? You received the free gift of salvation? You are filled with the Spirit of God. You are going to be gifted supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Where so many people get tripped up is when they assume that that gift has to be the same gift that was dispersed at Pentecost. The New Testament talks about 21 different gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you're not a second-class believer if you believed in Jesus and didn't immediately experience some kind of supernatural moment or have the ability to pray a certain way or talk a certain way, you don't have to wait for me or the elders to lay hands on you or for something special to happen to you. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt right now, there is power on the inside of you. It's just about discovering in the scriptures, where has God gifted you to do things that he hasn't gifted other people? There are 21 spiritual gifts, and this is where I wish I could go into every single detail about each one of the gifts. And I've talked on our stage before about, I gotta talk to you guys more about spiritual gifts because I don't think we fully understand this, but I never have, have like given y'all a full sermon on that. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna give you a book that me and the elders are reading. I said, I'm gonna give it to you like it's gonna be free. You can buy it, uh, but I'm gonna recommend it. Uh, it's the book Convergence by John Thompson. John Thompson is a pastor in Canada who's done some incredible work on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is the best book I have ever read that summarizes what does it mean for a believer to be gifted with the Holy Spirit and how does that gifting function in the life of a local church? So, I think there's some in the lobby. They may have bought all of them at the 8.30 though. You might just have to order it. We'll, we'll order more for next week and you can buy them here if you need them there. But if you have a Kindle or you're like, I gotta have it, I'm gonna read it all this week, please do that. To review everything we just said and then we're gonna go back to the original sermon I was preaching before. There is one baptism. It happens at conversion. There are many gifts. Every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit but that gifting is not your second baptism you need to wait for. That gifting is the gift of God for you to discover over time in a loving relationship with him. All of this, both water baptism and spiritual gifts are meant to give you confidence that you belong in the family of God and function as a way of glorifying God in a lifestyle of service in your local church. Good side sermon on baptism. Everybody feel good? Everybody wanna go back to Simon the Sorcerer? Here's what you gotta remember too about this verse. This is not a chapter that's a treatise on the theology of baptism. This is a section that's about Simon the Sorcerer being contrasted with the believers who are genuine. So stay with the story. We're gonna finish it out in verse 18. It says this, when Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, 
may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. If I look up here and do not miss this, the purpose of this short narrative in Acts chapter eight is dual. Number one, it is an invitation. It's an invitation to receive the gift of God as freely as the people in Samaria did for you and for me. But number two, and I would say more importantly, it is a warning. And it is a warning that it is possible to believe on the surface the message of Jesus and not have your heart in a position to actually receive what Jesus offers. This man, Simon, is not a child of God at this point. And I would argue from things we know in church history, he doesn't become one. In fact, a couple hundred years later, there was some writings about this guy. He actually had a statue put up in Samaria in honor of him. Uh, he started a heretical Gnostic movement where he gained notoriety by mastering the ability to levitate. And he led thousands of people away from right belief in the gospel down a really bad road. His heart was in a bad place. How do we know it was in a bad place? Because number one, he tried to buy the ability to disperse the Holy Spirit. He notices Peter and John are laying hands on people and people are supernaturally being gifted. And he's like, here's what I need to know. I need to know how they're doing that. He didn't want to know. Everybody look up here, don't miss this. He didn't want to know how to do that so that he could help other people. He wanted to know how to do that because he was a magician. And 2,000 years ago, if that was your trade, you know what you did when you came into contact with another magician who could do something that you couldn't do? You pulled them aside and offered to buy the secrets of how to do it in hopes that if you learned how to do it, you could sell the ability to do it. He's quite literally trying to invest into his financial future, going, I'm gonna buy the ability to do this and I'm gonna do it for people and I'm gonna charge them for it. And then on top of that, after he gets exposed and his heart is fully exposed before Peter, Peter calls him out and says, repent of this wickedness. What does he say? He doesn't say, okay, I'll repent and go pray. He says, will you pray for me that nothing that you warned will happen? He doesn't repent of the behavior. He asks to be delivered from the consequences, just like Esau. Remember when Esau tried to repent but couldn't find repentance? It's because Esau was only sorry that he lost the blessing. He wasn't sorry that he had betrayed the faith of his father because he didn't know God, nor did he want to. Simon's heart is far from God. This man is not saved. He is not in the family of God, and yet he claimed to believe and got dunked in front of the church. There's other signs in this story, by the way. There, there, there's some scholarly debate about this, but I'm pretty confident in saying this guy's not a believer. There's some other things in the story too that you didn't even notice earlier when you thought everything was going well. You notice a difference between Simon and the crowd. The crowd believes in the message of the gospel and gets baptized. Simon gets baptized and then follows Philip around. And what does he do? He marvels at the signs. Every time Luke talks about signs and wonders in his gospel in the book of Acts, he does it with some suspicion of like, people who just marvel and wonder at signs are ultimately missing the point. Like they're freaking out about the sign but they're not mature enough to see what the sign points to. 
I wanna make this make sense. So I told you, I have three daughters. One is six, one is four, one is one. Our one-year-old, her name's Mercy Jane. She is in a stage and a season of just straight up cuteness all the time. She is like responding to our mannerisms. She's repeating the words that we say. She's trying to do everything that we're doing. She can't walk yet. She's a little behind her sisters, but also she's our third kid. And after you've had a couple, you kind of want them to slow down the whole walking thing. Any other parents know what I'm talking about? We're like, yeah, you can take it easy on that because we taught the last two a little fast and then we were quickly, sorry. Um, so, so she's wandering around. All she does is try to mimic whatever me, her mom, or her sisters are doing. So literally, if we're driving down the street and I see something out the window that I want them to look at, and I'm like, oh, look, a, some animal or a rainbow, or I'm like, hey, girls, look. The older two will look out the window, but Mercy Jane will just point. Why? Because all she knows how to do is repeat the sign. Like if, if they make that sign, I'm gonna make that sign. That's what this guy is doing. He doesn't know how to look at what the sign points to because he's just obsessed with power and the ends that said power will hopefully bring to his life. Now, what, what does it have to do with us? Everything, stay with me, y'all stay with me. I want us to read into our story the warning that's in Acts chapter eight, verses 20 through 21. Look at what Peter says one more time. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. I want you to circle both of those phrases because they're related. You thought you could buy the gift of God? Y'all, that's like an oxymoron. You can't buy a gift. The very purchasing of the gift takes it from being a gift to it being a purchase. If you're gonna buy something from God, it fails to be the thing that God created it to be. And that is why your heart is not right with God because what you're trying to do is manipulate God's gift for your own ends now. Everybody look up at me and this is going to hit home so fast in 2023 in Auburn, Alabama. You might read this story and be like, Miles, I hear you. I will never try to buy the favor of God with money. That's a really easy sermon to apply, by the way, because you're like, great, I get the gift of God for free and I get to save money. I have no problem applying the sermon. Thank you, Simon the Sorcerer, for totally messing it up, but I'm good. That is not the application in our day of just, hey, don't try to buy God's forgiveness and, and don't try to buy the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. The message of this story is, have you ever wanted to manipulate God's gift for your own benefit? Where we live, there is a major tendency in our church and in the cities that follow along with what God's doing here to attempt to pull Jesus and bring him in to our pre-decided stories for our lives as some kind of asset. It's almost like we want the kingdom without the king. Good Jesus, love your vision for morality, love what you can teach my kids, uh, love the whole eternal fire insurance and freedom from hell thing, that's awesome. Man, you're amazing, here's what I wanna do. I wanna trust you, I want you to come into my heart and life, and I want you to just kind of fit nicely into my vision of the good life. 
and my vision for my comfort and my vision for my family. And you just kind of play nice over here. And your kingdom's got a lot of great things. It's got justice, it's got mercy, it's got forgiveness, it's got blessing. And you just kind of be who I want you to be. And I want to tell you this, the king of the universe, when he invades your life, he's got a space that he demands and it's called the throne of your heart. But it's possible for you and possible for me to live in the day we live in and go, Jesus, I love so much of what you have to offer, but I don't know if I really love you. Like, Where have you in your life, be honest about this, where have your motives been more about your comfort, your family's reputation, your story, your wants, than truly about the glory and the affection of Jesus? Where have you pursued pulling Jesus into what you already decided you wanted out of life versus where have you decided to just pursue Jesus for Jesus' sake? There's a huge difference. A couple years ago, I preached a sermon contrasting Judas and Peter, and it was amazing for me to study both of their lives because they're actually super similar, as different as the outcome is. It's like both of them, very close proximity to Jesus, both of them really important roles. Judas gets the money. Peter gets entrusted with the original confession of Jesus as Lord and then leading the early church. Both of them fail miserably the night before Jesus dies. Judas selling him for 30 pieces of silver. Peter denying him three times beside a charcoal fire. But yet their stories end totally different. Judas hangs himself. Peter goes on to do things like what we're reading about today. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? And the outcome of that sermon was, here's the difference. Judas loved what Jesus could do for Judas. Peter loved Jesus. And if you want to know today, if God looks at the heart and sees everything, what's the difference between someone who wants to pull the gifts of God into their story while ignoring the king and someone who accepts this gift the way it is given. The difference is, do you love Jesus intimately and personally? And in your heart of hearts, is that at the bottom of why you have chosen to be a Christian? Don't get me wrong, I love his gifts. He is a good gift giver. But at the end of the day, if heaven's on the table and he is not there, we have lost the prize and the treasure. And I stand in front of you today, flawed 34-year-old dad, husband, trying to figure life out. I do. But I know Jesus intimately and personally. Like he talks to me. He moves me. When I'm in a room all alone and I close the door and then I close my eyes, I'm not alone. And I know I'm not because I'm close to him. I have memories. I have stories. I have undeniable moments of presence with the son of God who fashioned me together in my mom's womb. I, I really do know him. And I know that sounds like Elf, but I do know. In the last service, I was like, I know him. And I'm like, you gotta stop, okay? Like, I really do. I know God personally. 
The sad thing about ACC, and I love our church, and so I say this humbly with like the intention for conviction and repentance. The sad thing about ACC is that there is a massive difference in our church between people who know Jesus personally and people who love what Jesus offers them. There are some of you within the sound of my voice, and this is convicting, but everything I just said confidently from this stage, as real and honest as I know how, you've been a Christian for a long time. You cannot stand up here and say what I just said. You, you don't know him. You don't have intimacy and closeness with him. If I told you to recall the relational closeness that you guys have and the, the, the relationship that's been built over time, you, you might have nothing to say because your whole life has been built on a construct of Christianity, but not on Jesus. And the invitation for you today is not for me to make you feel guilty. The invitation for you today is the same one Peter gave to this guy. It's time for you to realize your heart is not right with God and you're still breathing. You still have an opportunity to repent and stop living that way because here's what I know is true about you. Maybe you don't know Jesus personally. That's not because he hasn't been trying to talk to you. That's because lesser things have drowned out his voice and you have allowed them. If you are willing to tear down the idols that have become a veil between you and God, you're not going to get a God on the other side who's waiting to tell you how wrong you got it. You're going to get a heavenly father who's going, to be, who's going to be going, oh, I'm so glad you didn't fall for that Bible Belt, prosperous version of what Christianity is in Auburn, Alabama. I'm so glad you didn't miss the point because if you just get lost in forgiveness and eternity and moral, morality and all these cultural Christian things which have their place, you could have missed the one treasure I was really trying to give you all along, which is my son. And if you step into that, you're going to have the treasure of highest price. I mean, the thing your soul longs for more than anything in the created universe is closeness to the Son of God who offers himself openly to you. So if, if you are at all tracking with this sermon, and I have a feeling that a lot of people in this room are, and there's some angst and uneasiness in you of like, oh my goodness, how do I know? How do, how do I know that I am in this for Jesus or if I'm in this just for the gifts or just for his stuff? How, how do I know whether or not I've missed it? The litmus test for every person within the sound of my voice is the one thing God's looking for when he looks at your heart. God looks at the heart. So if he looks at the heart and everything's laid bare and Jesus paid for everything, all my secrets are exposed, but yet I'm forgiven. Okay, how do I know my heart is right in response to the gospel? The answer is one word. We'll put it on the screen. Let it set in. This is what God is looking for when he looks at your heart. Gratitude. Are you grateful? If you read the book of Hebrews, it'll cross you up in a hurry because there's like three different instances where it seems like the writer is saying that you can lose your salvation. But actually, the argument of Hebrews is, if you really know Christ, you will persevere in gratitude. That true faith 
is about a grateful spirit. Not that God's in heaven measuring our gratitude and going, how much have they thanked me today? And or are they really grateful? Are they? No, 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 no. It's not a measurement. God has saved you in full. And our faith is not our participation in salvation. So when we have faith, it's not, okay, God did that. Now I do this. No, our faith is the measure of whether or not true gratitude is actually present. So our faith is measured not in the size of our belief or even in our ability to obey good enough. Our faith is measured in this. Are you grateful for what was done on Calvary? And the sad thing about that is you can't just answer it with your words because your actions speak so much louder. Are you grateful? Is there a spirit of gratitude that comes over you where all you want to do with your life now is Romans chapter 12, live as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not to earn his favor, but no, because I have his favor, because he calls me son, because he calls me daughter, all I want to do with my life is say thank you. And that thank you won't be perfect. It won't be blameless. No, but that thank you will be the lifelong process of being formed into the image of Jesus. Are you grateful? Do you know him? Are you walking with him? And I know some of you, you're list people. You're like perfectionists. You're like, okay, it's gratitude. Miles, how do I know if I'm grateful enough? Like, like what's, what's, okay, so gratitude is what God is looking for when he looks at my heart. How do I know if I have truly manifested gratitude? That should be the question that you're asking. Gratitude is what separates people saved and unsaved. This is what Romans chapter one argues. What does it say? They neither glorified him as Lord nor gave thanks to him. See, we think of people separated from God because they persist in evil behavior, but actually people are separated from God because they persist in an ungrateful spirit. Although God did all of that, nothing in their life says thank you in response. That's what makes you lost. So the question today is, how do I know if gratitude has set in in my heart and life. And the answer is a quick equation I put together. And this is it. I told you I'm I'm overprepared with content. I know I went a little long, but y'all stay with me through this because this is the last part. Then you can go eat lunch. Obedience plus joy equals gratitude. This is how you know. Obedience plus joy equals gratitude. A quick word on each. Number one, obedience. You can know how grateful someone is by whether or not they obey God. Jesus said repeatedly, if you love me, obey my commands. First John repeats the same idea. And when you hear that from the son of God, you're like, okay, uh, this is a transaction. Jesus wants me to do the commands that he gives. So I'm just gonna make my list and do my stuff. But it's not Jesus going, hey, if you obey me, I'll be pleased with you. And then I'll know that you love me. It's Jesus going, hey, if you actually love and treasure me, why would you not trust my vision for what's best for your life? It's not a competition to prove how much you love God. It's Is the new foundation for how you live your life the word of God? Because you go, hold on, you're gonna do all that to save me and bring me into right relationship with you and you're gonna offer me the fullness of purpose in this life. I don't wanna live my own way anymore. I wanna take what you say and not just hear it, but do it. That person is grateful because they understand that obedience in the Christian life is not optional. It's love. It's being compelled. I don't know when grace started being preached in such a way where we all feel like we don't have to obey God anymore. They were just, oh, he's gonna forgive us anyway. It's fine. That, 
That thought right there is where so many New Testament writers go, "Mm -mm -mm, that's antinomianism and that is the opposite of gratitude. Gratitude is, why would I want to do anything with my life other than what you say? In fact, if anything, sin in the life of a believer is just that former disease driving us crazy. You know you know Jesus if you hate it about yourself that you keep going back to that stuff. And you're like, ah, if I could have control over all of my appetites and desires and thoughts all the time, all I would ever do is obey him because his way is best, but I'm pulled back by who I used to be. That is a struggle called sanctification. Welcome to the family of God. But what God's gonna do over time is he's actually going to grow your desire to do what he says. Not because you wanna prove your love, but because you trust his heart. You love me. You want what's, all I wanna do is obey you, but... It can't be just obedience because then you would be a transactional robotic-like machine and that's not what God created you to be. It's obedience plus joy equals gratitude. And this is the one that I think so many of us have left off our list of what we're pursuing when we're pursuing God. It's not just, did you do the stuff? It's, did you do the stuff with a heart that was seeking to delight in God more than you were previously enjoying sin. Joy is intended to be stirred up in a believer who's actually grateful for Jesus. And I know I am on very, very, very uneasy ground when I bring up joy, given the climate of mental health right now. Some of you are going, oh, it's great. Just be grateful and be joyful and obey God. Why didn't I think of that sooner? Like I, 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 but, but I'm struggling to have joy to make it through my day. Some of you, the state that you're in as you sit here right now is like, I would do anything to be able to stir up some kind of emotion for God in my spirit, but I just can't find it. And if you're here today and joy is a struggle for you and, and knowing how to stir up joy for yourself is difficult, welcome to the club. Here's the thing though, I wanna argue, we're looking for joy in the wrong source. Scripture says in Nehemiah 8, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. In other words, when God calls you to be joyful, he's not calling you to find surface level happy thoughts and trivial things. He's calling you to tap in to his joy. Wait, God is joyful? If God is anybody in the pages of scripture, he is a father who's throwing a party and waiting for his children to show up. That's who the God of the universe is. He's got a lot of joy to go around. Our problem is we're digging through our own stories and our own bank accounts and our own stuff going, how can I find joy in surface level things? And God's going, you gotta go deeper into my heart to find out what brings me joy. And do you wanna know today what brings God joy? His children halting all of their false beliefs about what he thinks about them. What would make God overwhelmed with joy in heaven right now is if you would stop believing for five seconds that he's so mad at you, he's not gonna use you. That he's so separated from you, that you've blown it, that you don't get it. What brings God joy is when you agree with him that what Jesus did was enough. So make God happy today by going, I agree with you. You share in his joy. I get in the presence of God sometimes and I just think to myself, I think it would make God happy if I stopped being so downcast around him because of all he did to make this okay, man, what would it look like 
if the joy of the Father in Luke chapter 15 spread to your life and your face. Think about Luke 15, the two sons that are both lost, they don't have a lot to be joyful about. The younger son definitely does not. He ran away from home and blew all of his dad's money, scorned the family name. I mean, he has a lot to be ashamed of and the dad wants to throw a party and he's like, I don't, I don't have anything to celebrate. All I've done is mess this up. And here's what the dad would say. And he would say it to some of you today. I know you don't have a lot to celebrate, but I do because you're here. So let my joy be yours and put on the robe and come to the party. He doesn't even stop there. The older brother who's self-righteous, crossing his arms outside, like, I can't believe you're gonna throw a party for that son of yours. He doesn't even say my brother. He says, that son. I'm, no, I'm not coming to the party. And what does the dad say to him? Everything I have is yours, son. You're mad at him because he has a party? He already squandered his part of the estate. You do know that all of this is yours, right? But we had to celebrate because this brother was lost and found. He was dead, now he's alive. The father's like, I don't just have enough joy for your younger brother. I got enough joy for the self-righteous as well. God's got enough joy for some of you who would rather spend the rest of your life in church, crossing your arms and putting your hands in your pocket and looking like you hate the people who are leading on stage. I actually meant that, but I love that that was funny. And I, and I, like, I, I thought long and hard about whether or not to include this at the end of the sermon. Obviously, I decided to go with it. And, uh, and it's like, y'all, I, I do not mean this for people who are new. If, if some of you coming to this room was a step of faith in the first place, I, for years, you've been like, I'm not going to that hand-raising church. I'm not doing it. I've heard you say it. And now you're here. Welcome. Like, I'm not talking to you. If you're new, you're visiting, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you. If you claim to know Jesus, you've been a part of a Bible-believing church. Like everything I said at the beginning, God took everything you're ashamed of, everything you would rather hide, and he put it on the cross and he pinned it to Jesus so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Like you believe that. I'm just saying, it wouldn't be the worst thing for you to learn the discipline of stirring up real joy in your emotions. Like connect your devotion to God with some emotion. I'm not saying you gotta raise your hands, okay? I'm just saying a better response to the son of God, taking everything you wanted to hide and paying for it, a better response than looking at your watch or wondering why it's going long today or complaining about the volume, a better response would be, oh my God, thank you, Jesus, you saved me. Like maybe smile one time. Like maybe just allow and go, oh my, I feel like joy is rising. You wanna know why? Because the Holy Spirit's here and a fruit of the spirit is joy. So let's let joy abound. Let's take the weight off of our shoulders. Let's stop taking ourselves so seriously and stir up joy in the presence of God. Let's go into a time of communion. You should have got those uh, communion sets on the way. And if you didn't, just raise your hand right where you're at. And also know that anytime we have this time of response after the sermon, our communion stations are available. If you wanna go kneel, if you wanna go break a piece of bread off and dip it in the juice, you can do that. There's so many different ways to do this. This is us remembering that everything I preached about today is true because of what Jesus has done. His body, his blood, more than enough to forgive you. 
Husbands, pray over your wives. I realize this was a dense sermon with a lot to think through and talk through. Let's just let this set for a moment as we remember what Jesus has done. And then in a couple of minutes, we will stir up some joy in this room for what Jesus has done. Y'all take communion and then we'll come right back.